So hopefully, by now, you all, or most of you, have a double-sided picture of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses. Hands up if you've not yet got one. Oh yeah, making their way to the back. I should have found a more efficient way of doing that, sorry, than giving two piles, that would have been. All right. Okay, so as we begin, let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the time that you've blessed us with together today. Uh, We're grateful to you for the gift of holiness which Jesus has shared with us by pouring out his spirit upon us. And we ask that as we reflect on how holiness is depicted in Scripture, we may be led into more careful and thoughtful consideration of some of the lessons that we ought to learn from your word about that gift of holiness that's been given to us and the task of bearing that holiness in the world around us. And so bless us richly, we pray. Watch over us and give us insight into your word and purify our hearts from vain things to love and serve you, our living God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to try to weave what I want to say into Pastor Booth's opening big picture by reminding you that actually following the great John Calvin, Pastor Booth highlighted that before we can know ourselves, we must first know God. And in particular, we need to know him rightly as he's revealed in Scripture. It's no good to have a kind of either erroneous or even just thin description of the character of God. We need to deepen and uh, enrich our knowledge of who God is, what he's like. Uh, One of the books that Pastor Booth mentioned was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you read that book, uh, the opening page, I think, if I recall correctly, contains an extended quotation from a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon, uh, which was written, if I remember, when he was 19 years old. It's an astonishing... I mean, most people who are 19 should not be preachers. Uh, I hereby declare an exception for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, The book is worth it for that page of uh, quotation from a sermon. And the reason is because it elevates our expectations so far beyond what I think they normally sink to. So that's where Pastor Booth began, if you like, and and with a, a, a wonderful and rich and quite challenging at times, I'm sure you found it, exploration of what it means to be holy and and the intensity of that call upon us. Holiness, remember, is that quality of God which distinguishes him or separates him from all created things in his purity and ethical uh, rightness. The, The actual root word for the Hebrew word holy comes from the verb to cut off or to separate. 
So God's separateness, if you like. And in one sense, God's different from us in all his attributes, but his holiness particularly pertains to his moral purity, how he is other than us in that respect. And it is true that it, it's, a, it's a very, very common way in which God is described in Scripture. Isaiah, just to take one example, speaks frequently of the Holy One of Israel. And that reflects the character of his call, Isaiah 6, where he um, heard the words, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, the challenge before us then is to think, okay, so how are we going to figure out what God's holiness is and what it means? Or to put it another way, where precisely is the holiness of God revealed? And the answer is, of course, in Scripture. Yeah, 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 okay, good, right? But if you were to go back in time and ask a faithful Old Testament Israelite if you could find one, where should I look to see the holiness of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel revealed? Where should I go? What should I look? What, what should I look at? What should I be thinking about? He or she would have one immediate answer for you. There is one place that you should go if what you want to see is the holiness of God. And that place is the tabernacle. Or more broadly, whichever of Israel's sanctuaries or holy places was in operation at the time. I've chosen here the the tabernacle because it was the first of Israel's national sanctuaries. It was the first architecturally built place where the whole people gathered. Who can tell me um, in what what stage in history the the tabernacle was first constructed? Who knows? Go on, stick a hand in the air. Don't be shy. Yeah, go on, Elise. Exodus, very good. So you've got, in the book of Exodus, the people come out of Egypt with the purpose of worshipping God. Let my people go so that they can worship me. And Pharaoh and, and the Lord and through Moses have this back and forth for ages and ages and ages, it seems like. And eventually Pharaoh's like, get out of here, I don't want any more of you. Then he changes his mind, chases after them, drowns in the Red Sea. Uh, uh, they get into the wilderness and they encounter God at Mount Sinai, where there he speaks his law to them. And much of the second half of the book, that gets us to about halfway through the book of Exodus, much of the second half of the book is occupied you just turn to the book of Exodus, with these unbelievably tedious architectural details. And if you just look with me, just for a second, um, you find from chapter 26, well no, before that even, chapter 25, chapter 26, 27, the priests' garments are in chapter 28, but the priests and are the people who work at the sanctuary, all the way through chapter 28, 29, the altar of incense and all that stuff in chapter 30. Um, Descriptions of what they're supposed to build. Here's what you're supposed to build. Here's the design of this place. And then you have all the the shambles with the golden calf and all that kind of malarkey and Moses getting two new tablets. And then you have, as though it needs to be repeated, you have then a description of all the things that have been described previously as this is how you're supposed to do it, a description of them all being made in the way that they were described as the architectural drawings for them. It's like, how much papyrus do you want to waste on this? The answer is, as much as it takes to emphasise that the precise details of this tabernacle, this tent of meeting where the people would meet with God, are so tremendously significant as a revelation of the holiness of God. And 
I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up and tell me honestly, but really, come on. How many of you find your eyes glazing over and you know, wishing that you were somewhere in Philippians or Mark's Gospel when you get to Exodus 37? Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a moulding of gold around it. And he... Hmm. Give me some action. You know, I want to get... Judges is more kind of fun than this, right? You know, blood and guts and slaughter everywhere. Well, it turns out that the details of the sanctuary are profoundly significant. And what I want to do today, this is ridiculous to attempt, really, is to explore some of the features of this tent, which is what it really is, with the aim of helping you to see what it tells us about God's holiness and God himself and about how we are to relate to him. Just let me briefly describe it, because some of you won't probably have seen uh, a picture like this before. Uh, there's two sides. So let's look first at the, um, the, the, the picture that shows more detail. This is the tabernacle and the court around it. Can you all see that? And so basically what you've got is a uh, fenced area, I guess around about half the size of a football field. Those people are to scale with a seven and a half foot high uh, fence around it, uh, an entrance. um, And then you've got a large bronze altar in the middle of an open courtyard, which is where sacrifices would have been offered. You've got a couple of guys there, uh, one dressed in white, one dressed in some kind of funny mishmash colours. Uh, standing next to a big bowl of water on a stand. And then you have the tabernacle itself. Now, if you flip over the page, you can then see a close-up of the tabernacle itself. And you've got you know, the, the guy in funny clothes standing next to it just to highlight what it's like. You see what's in here. You know, you've got the structure itself. It's four layers. Uh, on the outside, there are animal skins. Uh, on the inside, blue linen cloth, heavily embroidered, beautifully um, manufactured. It's all made of wood inside, these wooden boards uh, on the inside. Uh, there's some kind of creature embroidered on the internal curtain. There's a, this tent has an internal division in it. Can you see? Um, there's the, the main entrance here into what's called the holy place. And then there's a further barrier... This, the most holy place is behind this barrier and there's something embroidered on that curtain we'll come to that in a few minutes the most holy place is in there where you've got the Ark of the Covenant the two poles that were used to carry it and inside the Ark of the Covenant you've got a copy of the law uh, in the holy place just to complete the um, uh, realtor tour so you know what it is you're buying if you choose to um, you've got a table with some loaves of bread on it how many people know how many loaves of bread there were? Twelve. Interesting. Uh, you've got an altar for incense, smaller than the altar outside, made of gold. Everything's made of gold in here, apart from the bread. The bread is obviously made of bread. Um, and then you've got a lampstand um, with seven uh, lamp holders just there on the left as you walk in. And the lampstand is in the shape of a tree. It's actually described using terms that come from horticulture. We'll look at this in Exodus um, 30. Uh, no, sorry, Exodus 25. Um, in a few minutes' time. It, uh, the, the, the holders for the lamps are described as calyxes. Does people know what a calyx is? Hmm. I, think I get to teach something to uh, people who know more about ranching 
and farming than me, probably. A calyx is, is the bud on a plant, like an almond plant, which is part of the design here, that turns into the flower. Or it's the thing that's just behind the part that turns into a flower. So it's, it's, to, it's meant to look like a tree, a burning tree. It might remind you of something. We'll come to it in a few minutes. So that's basically the tabernacle. And what I want to do is to walk through some, we won't get to all, some of the features of this and try and show you what this teaches about God's holiness and therefore about how we should respond to his holiness. So, turn back over and look at the picture that's got the court on it. I want you to imagine, okay? I've told you the answer to this question already. Um, But you'll need to think carefully. If you were standing where that little man is standing, right here, and you walked around the tabernacle, around the, this fence, what would you see? Okay. You'd see a fence. Would you be able to see over the fence? Why not? Because it's seven and a half feet tall. So the very first thing that you would notice as you approached the holy place where God had chosen to make his presence is that you may not enter. You can't go in. There's a barrier all the way around. In fact, only the priests are allowed in and only the high priest is allowed into the most holy place and only in there once a year. And you bring your offering. Uh, you may bring it, um, if I recall correctly, you might bring it into the outer court when you brought your offering, but you wouldn't, wouldn't go any further. You certainly wouldn't enter the tabernacle itself. You'd see this tent there, but you wouldn't be allowed to go into it. So the first thing you would feel is barriers. Exclusion. Don't enter. So why? Well, the simple answer is that sinful people can't approach a holy God. And that's what you are, you wretched Israelites. You beloved, wretched Israelites. You can't come near to the blazing perfection of the holiness of God. And in fact, that's what's highlighted uh, right at the moment, if you've still got Exodus open, when the tabernacle is constructed when the, the construction of the tabernacle is, is finished uh, at the end of the book of Exodus verse 34 uh, the cloud which of course is the manifestation of the presence of God that's been leading the people through the wilderness covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's this tremendously bittersweet moment. You've just reached the climax so far of the whole of the revelation of God to his people. You've had your redemption from slavery in Egypt. You've come through the waters of the Red Sea. You're in the wilderness. You've heard the voice of God like thunder from the mountain and you've received the law and you've received the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and here you are a year after your redemption from slavery in Egypt the the tent has finally been built the glory of the Lord has entered into it and there you are and you can't go in 
Precisely because God is there, you can't go there. And the simple answer, as I said, is because the holiness of God keeps you away. You can't approach him. And that's the problem with which the book of Exodus ends. Now, in order to see how this problem is solved, what I need to do is to take you backwards, firstly. Um, My apologies if your Bible gives you paper cuts, by the way, because we're going to be flipping around a little bit. If you wouldn't mind turning back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 explains why the people weren't able to enter the tabernacle. Uh, Just remember for a moment (laughs) that the tabernacle is a place where the word of the Lord is found. Ark of the Covenant. The two tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God is there. The cloud. Uh, Everything is gold. There's a Lampstand in the shape of a tree, there is water, there is food. You read through Genesis chapter 2, you find all those things. God is there. God's presence is there. God speaks there. There is gold there. There is water there. There are trees there and there is food there. What you have in the tabernacle is actually an architectural replica of the Garden of Eden. And the reason you can't go into the Garden of Eden is the reason why Adam and Eve were thrown out in the gar- of the garden in the first place. So you look at, you know what chapter 3 is all about. Genesis chapter 3 is the description of, sometimes called the fall, um, which I, I can understand why it's called the fall in the sense of it's a, a descent into sin. But fall makes it sound like it was kind of accidental. You know, oops. Yeah. The rebellion might be actually a, a theologically richer term, at least to establish the deliberate and wanton and destructive and self-destructive character of what Adam and Eve did there. In consequence of which, uh, they and the land in which they were to live were cursed. And worst of all, at the end of the chapter, uh, Genesis 3, verse 22... The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Isn't that just interesting? You've just received the thing that the the snake promised you. Then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, Yes, you have, in a sense. Knowing good and evil. To know in biblical idiom means to be intimate with. Adam knew his wife, Eve. Same word. They've come not to just understand good and evil... Like when Solomon later says, give to your servant an understanding mind that he might discern good and evil, to distinguish between them. He's the, he, he's the righteous Adam, the righteous man, discerning between good and evil. No, no, Adam and Eve came to know good and evil. To become intimate with it. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, lest he eat the food... We don't want him eating bread and living forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you can't get into the tree to eat because why? What would stop you just wandering back into the Garden of Eden at this point? 
an angel with a sword that's, and fire. Is the sword burning or is it fire as well as sword? don't know. I like the idea of the burning sword. You've seen the, the Balrog. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> it's a whip, isn't it, actually? It's a kind of fiery whip, but I don't know whether that's what it actually was. So what would happen to you if you decided, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get into the Garden of Eden past the cherubic bodyguard bouncers who are there to keep you out. Well, he's got a sword in one hand and fire in the other and he's waving them around like this. So what's going to happen to you if you try and walk past it? Chopped up into pieces and set on fire. You really don't want to get chopped up into pieces and set on fire. Do you? So, there you are. You're in the wilderness and you've just built a replica Eden. And God has just moved in. Sorry, not replica Eden, a replica garden of Eden. So turn back to the end of Exodus again. You've built a house for God. Not a house, sorry. A built a tent for God. The house comes later. You've built this tent for God. God has moved in. You can't enter because God is there. Because the last thing you want is to be chopped into pieces and set on fire. And so you have this kind of slightly dry and depressing conclusion to the book of Exodus. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the ark went, you know, they picked up the tabernacle. And, sorry, wherever the cloud went, they picked up the tabernacle and followed it. They were led by the Lord through the wilderness. But no resolution is given to the problem of how you go in until you turn the page to the very next book of the Bible, which begins with the words, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This is not like six months later or two years later or even 20 minutes later. This is at that moment, the, the first five and actually first six books of the Bible are a continuous historical narrative arguably even into the book of Judges so they're sitting outside the, the tabernacle, Moses and all his chums having a Starbucks wondering what to do like they can't go in there because the Lord's in there and then the Lord says hey, whenever you bring an offering hint, hint <laughs> bring it from the herd or the flock in other words he gives the instructions concerning how you are to enter this sanctuary. How are you going to come in? Well, bring an offering. And, okay, I'm still a little bit nervous, Lord, about this kind of angel, sword, fire thing. Can we just address that? And the Lord says, yeah, patient, patient, patient. We've got seven chapters to explain all the sacrifices to you. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3. Now look, if the offering, let's just take one example. If the offering is a burnt offering, literally an, an offering that ascends, it's an ascension offering, one that goes up, from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish and bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be, that, that's the um, uh, indication that the Israelites did actually go inside the court but not into the tent. Yeah, so they go in there. If that's the implication here, which probably it seems to be. I guess some people might think you go just to the entrance of the court. I don't know. But I, it seems to me like you're going inside, inside that uh, enclosure. Bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And then you do something very significant. What do you do? Yeah, you lay your hands. I, I need a volunteer. Sorry, I've done this before at Summer Sanctus. So some of you have been here, done that. Where's Zachary Capone when you need him? Um, yeah, no, there he is now. Okay, we're going to get somebody else. So you, you want to point the finger at Zachary Capone. So would you mind step to the front? Because um, what I need is I really need a, a 
<laughs> a cow. <laughs> Preferably a male one, so I thought, do you mind getting down on all fours? <laughs> and I was going to make sure I follow the instructions here. So, no, all fours. No, 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 <laughs> right. Donkeys can talk, but cows can't walk on their back legs, right? That's not... And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It's a gesture, and literally, it's not lay, it's press. It's like, what? sorry about this. You're doing great. You stay there for a few more minutes. You press your hand down on the head of the burnt offering, probably confessing your sins over it. It's a gesture of identification. Imagine, you have to stay there for a second. Imagine if I find a son here. And I, I might introduce him to Pastor Booth if they've not met. And I might say, uh, this is my son, Ben. I, I, instinctively, I put my hand on his shoulder. It's my son. Yeah. This is my cat. <laughs> Seth, you're doing great. It's okay. No, I mean, I've got the knife. Thing. <laughs> and it shall, notice how you know that this is a gesture of identification. It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Can you see? You have to read so carefully. If I lay my hand, press my hand mm, on the head, <laughs> it shall be accepted for him. And then, he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Okay, hold on. Just going to... Sorry, you can go now. <laughs> I don't know whether that was actually technically an illegal act I just did. I'm not sure I'm supposed to... Brandishing or something. Is this recording going to be made public? Oh, of course. Um, it wasn't actually a knife, it was a fake knife, it's fine. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering. You're quite glad that I got you out of this at this point, right? Lay the hands on, but not kill blood, skin you alive, that kind of thing. Would have been bad. Cut it into pieces. Hold on a second. Cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire, and Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire, on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. Isn't that wonderful? So here I come, trembling with apprehension, to meet my God at the tabernacle. Knowing, like this is, we've never done this before. <laughs> yep. Knowing that 20 minutes ago Moses couldn't go in because, you know, the Lord's there. But he says, if you bring Seth, so if you bring a cow, and if you identify with it and you chop it into pieces and set it on fire, then as you watch the smoke ascend, and mingle with the cloud which is the presence of the Lord, it will be as though you just went back into the Garden of Eden. Such is the purpose of sacrifice. You get to have an animal to substitute for you, to make atonement for you, hence all the stuff with purification by blood. Blood is a kind of spiritual disinfectant in the book of Leviticus. As you saw the blood of the cow sprinkled around the ground and around the tent, you would see, so to speak, the visible bright red proof of your wickedness being washed away. Not 
physically washed away. It's blood. That doesn't actually wash things away. But it's a spiritual disinfectant. And then as you watch the smoke ascend, it's why it's called an ascension offering, because the, the animal is glorified, the animal is transfigured, turned into something else which can go up and be taken into and mingle with and become one with the cloud that is the presence of God. And you go back home to your you know, wife, husband, kids, say, how'd it go? And it's like, yeah, the Lord accepted us. We're back with him. And I, I saw us ascending and becoming indistinguishable from him in the cloud. Once a year, you'd have the really dramatic and significant occasion when the high priest would go all the way into the tent, not just into the holy place, but into the most holy place. On the Day of Atonement, he would go through that uh, curtain. Remember the curtain, if you look at the the more blown-up diagram, um, that's got the uh, embroidery on it. Can you see? And there's a a little figure here. Do you know what that figure was? What was be embroidered there? Yeah. It's an architectural, well, I guess fabric, if that's architecture, replica of the cherubim. It's like the high priest is allowed to go past the cherubim through the curtain. But only one guy, and only once a year, okay? Don't push your luck. He alone would get to go into the presence of God. And then the fact that we all knew we'd have to do it again next year is kind of proof of the temporariness of this thing. It's, the, the sacrifices simultaneously testify to their own efficacy. You see the blood. You see the animal die in your place. You see the smoke mingle with the presence of God. You see it working. It's a sacrament. You see what God is doing. Just like in baptism, you see God cleansing somebody. And like with the Lord's Supper, you taste God feeding you. You experience what God is doing. You, you see the efficacy, but then you see the lack of efficacy at the same time. Because you have to go, we all know, that, you know we'll be back next year then. <laughs> it's like this is not something that deals with sins permanently. Because what we'd really love to do is, instead of having one guy go through that curtain once a year, it wouldn't be awesome if we could just like rip that curtain down. Right? And you all know where we go to find that. You turn to Mark 15. And um, this is just the end of Mark, towards the end of Mark 15. This is the uh, description of the trial before Pilate and the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the death of Jesus. Very familiar words from verse 37, Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was a son of God. So he saw 
that this is how the man died. I don't know whether he heard the tearing sound from the temple, but unlikely. But the way that Mark depicts it, can you see, it's, it's as though he's juxtaposing the conduct of Jesus on the cross with the fact of this curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom. And the temple, I forget how many yards high it was, but it was so much higher than you could reach. The temple was like a blown up, solid version of the tabernacle. And it was torn from top to bottom, permanently opened, so that we may enter. It's interesting. Truly this man was the Son of God. Um, the, the phrase Son of God is often misunderstood in Scripture. We, we, we frequently conflate it with the phrase God the Son. In, perhaps you're familiar with the distinction. Um, God is Father, Son and Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And sometimes we might refer to the second person as not just God the Son, but the Son of God. And that's fair enough, that's reasonable. But actually, the, the phrase Son of God um, is more frequently used in Scripture to describe a king. Uh, David is God's son. Uh, Solomon is God's son. Uh, and I think it's very significant that the centurion is the guy who says this man is the son of God. Partly it's a, a little sort of jibe at his Roman authorities. Maybe he doesn't realise this what he's saying. But like, who's the true king around here? <laughs> Caesar? Uh-uh. Truly this man is the son of God. This is the way to be crowned like this. But there's something else going on. Um, It's connecting what Jesus did here with what the great King David had done many years earlier. You know there was another tent between... Normally when when people trace the history of God's sanctuaries, they go uh, tabernacle in the wilderness, temple of Solomon, maybe then remember the rebuilding of the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Ezekiel's vision of the temple, and then Jesus is some kind of new temple, right? Well, they miss one out. You know, there's another tent. David's tent. Let me show you. First Chronicles 15. I'll show you why this is so significant, because it tells us something remarkable about what Jesus came to do by showing us what um, David anticipates about him. This is uh, buried deep in the Old, Old Testament histories. When uh, David has finally overthrown his enemies and been delivered from the hand of Saul, uh, Saul is dead. And he makes his journey to Jerusalem and he finally brings the ark to Jerusalem in uh, verse 15 and he builds a house for himself in in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 1 and he prepared a place for the ark of God but he didn't build a house for it. Who's the guy who builds the house for God? Solomon, right? David wants to or he has this idea to but no, no, Solomon's going to do that. So where does David put it? In a tent. But he doesn't put it in the tabernacle. He makes a new tent. And so you might think, oh, it's probably just like the, the tabernacle or something. Well, it's like the tabernacle in the sense that it is a tent. But you look closely. As you turn the page, if you turn the page in your Bible, um, to 1 Chronicles 16, verse 1, they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Before God, it says very deliberately, before God. Verse 4, then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord. Where are they sitting exactly? 
Where are they standing or, or working? Right. Exactly. There's no separation in the tent. It's just a tent with the ark in it. It's not like the tabernacle of Moses. If you look carefully at the detail in First Chronicles 16, David and the Levites and the singers, he's in a massive hurry to get people singing because it turns out that singing is how the presence of God is drawn near, which is why when Saul feels terrible because the spirit of the Lord departs from him, he says, go get David. And David comes and plays the harp because when you sing psalms, the spirit of God draws near, obviously. Right? So, in First Chronicles 16, it is before the Ark of the Covenant itself. This is a tent with no divisions in it. It's an anticipation of what Jesus is going to do. We don't need to tear the curtain down because there's no curtain. So it's very striking, actually. That um, You remember in that um, moment in Acts chapter 15 when they have the council at Jerusalem, they're trying to work out what to do with all these Gentiles, you know. Got all, all the Jewish people, they're allowed to be Christians, but what about English folks and Americans, for goodness sake, but barbarians. Are they allowed to um, enter the kingdom of heaven? Are they allowed to join with Jesus? And you turn to, to Acts 15. And, and they're all trying to work out, well, what should we do? Do we require them to be circumcised? Basically, that's the debate. Because we know that Jewish people who have the mark of circumcision, the old covenant identifying mark of this is the people of God, we know who they are because of this sign. So do we require them to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Or do we say, no, Gentiles are just welcome in? Right? And they have this big, long debate. And um, basically the decision is, in verse 19... Um, this is James who sort of stands up and sorts everything out, which probably indicates that James is sort of in charge, some kind of bishop or leading presbyter in Jerusalem. My judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and sexual immorality and things that have been strangled and from blood, but there's no mention of circumcision. We don't have to have the circumcision thing for Gentiles. But what's the text that James appeals to to prove that Gentiles are welcomed in? to the community of the people of God. It's from Amos chapter 9, and it is not about the tabernacle. And it's not even about the temple of Solomon. What it's about, Acts 15 verse 16, the previous verse, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. All people everywhere may seek the Lord. Because in Christ, what's being built is not a new tabernacle of Moses, actually. It's not even a new temple only. It is a new temple. It's a new Davidic tabernacle with no internal division. So anybody's welcome. Just come straight on it. Which means that when it comes to thinking about holiness and purity and all the practical nitty-gritty things that we're going to come to, some of which we've already raised, some of which we've hinted at, some of which Pastor Booth is going to talk about tomorrow morning, uh, many of which I hope we have a chance to talk about perhaps in Q&A time or in one-to-one or small group conversations. When it comes to all that, yeah, but what should I do in this situation? The very first thing that we need to have absolutely clear is that you are actually holy. You have been 
brought into the place where the Most High dwells. You've been brought there by the sacrifice of Christ through whom you've been cleansed. You have been, like the, the sacrifices themselves, you have been mingled with God. Like the smoke ascending into his presence. Holiness is in the first instance not something that you are to pursue. It is something that you have and are. Now, it is therefore something that you must pursue. But it's not that you go out into the world conscious of your wickedness and trying not to make it any worse. You go out into the world conscious above all else that you are purified. You are a holy, spotless, without blemish, gold artifact in the Holy of Holies. No, better than that. In heaven itself, in the presence of the living God. We are not to think of holiness as the pursuit of something so far beyond us that we can never attain to it. We are to think of unholiness as something so far beneath us that it's unthinkable we would ever descend there. The very last thing you do with those gold pots and pans and utensils in the tabernacle or the temple or David's tent is to take them out and use them to have macaroni cheese with you and your family in. That's That's not what you do with holy vessels. Holy vessels are for holy things only. And so the absolutely last thing on earth we're going to do with sanctified human beings, human beings made holy, human beings who are seated with Christ in the true tent, set up by God, not by man, Hebrews, the very last thing that it's even conceivable that we would ever want to do is to be polluted by uncleanness, correct? It's not like, oh, I'm so wicked, I'm so awful, how do I get holy? No, you are actually holy. Now let's talk about how we exhibit that purity. And it radically changes your mindset, you see? Because what happens is now sin becomes unthinkable. Inconceivable. It's why in 1 John, uh, the Apostle speaks with such decisiveness about those who are, not the exact phrasing, but the sense of it, those who are in Christ cannot sin. They cannot continue in sin. Our Bible translations wrestle with how to translate it. Because you're first and foremost holy. Now, okay, what we've talked about has taken us a little bit into this subject. There's about seven or eight other things I'd like to talk about. And what I'll try and do is I'll I'll throw them all in together. Okay? Um, I'm not sure how this is going to work. Possibly 15 minutes, 10 minutes. What do you think? Yeah, okay. I'll try I'll aim for ten and see how we how we get on. Thank you. Um, what else would you notice? Well, look here at this picture again. What do you notice about the clothes that this guy is wearing? It matches the curtains of the tabernacle. This is a priest. The priest is dressed up like a walking tabernacle. Huh? <laughs> He's got the same coloured robes on. All the descriptions are there in Exodus about how to make the clothes for him. And I thought about this for a long time. I was wondering about why this is the case. And in, in some ways it's because, well, what God really wants to do is to 
tabernacle in the form of a man. Yeah, the word became flesh, John 1.14, and tabernacled among us. Or what God really wants to do is to make his presence dwell in all his people. And we'll come to that in a couple of minutes. But there's one really intriguing thing about this. Um, if you look at the tabernacle itself, you notice there are four layers. Can you see them? On the outside, you have animal skins. And on the inside, you have this blue linen. Whereas you look at the priest, and what you've got is on the outside, blue linen, and on the inside, you've got skin, like his skin. What's the difference? It's flipped. The priest is actually an inside-out tabernacle. Why? Because God is clothing us in holiness. God is clothing us in holiness, yes. His righteousness covers. Yeah? The, the, the linen, the white linen in Revelation stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So linen, righteous acts, maybe. Yes. He's supposed to be ministering to the people. But. Yes. No, no, keep going, keep going. Okay, let me, let me ask the question this way, and I'll come back. When you see the priest, it's like seeing the tabernacle, correct? Because same colours. Is it like seeing the inside of the tabernacle or the outside of the tabernacle? The inside. It's deliberately inverted. God could have built the tabernacle, so it was skin on the inside, linen on the outside. And then seeing the priest is like seeing the outside of the tabernacle. Great. Well, if you jump, right... I can get seven and a half feet off the ground. I can see the outside of the tabernacle, but I can't see the inside of the tabernacle. I really want to see the inside of the tabernacle. How do I do that? Easy. You go and meet the priest. Because the priest is like the walking inside of the tabernacle. Which is somewhat challenging because... Turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19. This is um, something of a climax of really the first ten chapters of Hebrews and certainly um, chapter 10 itself which is following the theme we've been talking about already the, the ways in which Christ sacrifices the final and completing sacrifice which fulfills fills full all of the former sacrifices of Israel. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What? Hold on a second. We have confidence? Yeah, because we're all priests now, which is why we get to draw near by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, because just how is the curtain torn? Which by his flesh being torn in sacrificial death for us. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, so he's our great high priest, he's died for us in a, uh, and offers sacrifice for us in a way that we don't do for other people. He's a priest, a greater priest than us. We have a priest over the house or household of God. Let us, verse 22, and this is a technical term used to describe what the priests did under the old covenant. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our bodies washed with pure water. So, we are to do now what the priests 
of the Old Covenant did. We have that privilege in worship of drawing near to God. Lift up your hearts. Respond. What did you just do? We lift them up to the Lord. I guess you just lifted your hearts up to the Lord. That is to say, I guess you just entered the most holy places by the blood of Jesus. So since you have confidence to do that, you are now a priest walking around displaying on your outside the inside of the sanctuary where God dwells. You are to display outwardly his inner sanctuary holiness. How do you do that? Well, we carry on reading. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. That is not just, oh, the random exhortation to try and be godly. It's like, this is how you display the holiness of the living God. The the practical nitty-gritty details that we'll come to are not just, uh, like, box-ticking godliness items where if I can get 8 out of 12, that would be quite good. No, this this is your display of the holiness of Yahweh. So the priest, as the priest walked past, even in a crowd, so you couldn't see him, what would you notice? Smell. The priest was anointed with holy oil, the recipe for which is described in Exodus 30. We don't have time to look at it. There's this recipe for holy oil and holy incense which you weren't allowed to use for anything else. You couldn't like use it as perfume. If you use it as per- perfume, you get excommunicated. That's what the text says. You get cut off from the people of God. If you make any incense or any holy oil, any anointing oil like this, you only anoint holy things with it. And so you would have this um, sense of when the priest had walked past. And you know what fragrances are like? They're so kind of pervasive. You, you, it's often... If you have a like, wonderful smell, somebody's got some like, wonderful aftershave on or something, right? And you can't tell who, who it is initially. And there's something indiscernible and pervasive and highly evocative about smell. And so then you, and we don't have time to do this with the richness and fullness that it deserves, but you trace the theme of fragrance through the Bible. Let's just land in one place. Um, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2. Verse 14. I think we'll finish with this. There's, there's more that we could talk about with the oil and the altar and the bread and the lampstand and everything else, but we'll, we need to move to the next thing. But I want to read this to you. Hebrews 2, oh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, um, verse 14. This is the um, beaten up, worn down, been shipwrecked, spent the night and the day in the open sea, five times received from the Jews, the five, 40 lashes minus one, Paul the Apostle, despised and looked down upon by his Corinthian friends, quote-unquote. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God. And I think there's, there's so much in how fragrance works that teaches us about how our holiness works. The the thing we often miss, I think, is um, 
the imperceptible character of Christian influence. If you are the fragrance of God, you might impact the people around you in ways that you just can't identify or tie down or specify. I I can think of people who have listened to 10, 20, 50, 100, 500 sermons on Christian godliness. But then they meet one godly Christian man a couple of years older than them. And that flips the switch in their mind. Because what they picked up was the fragrance of God. The fragrance of Christ. I've seen it again and again and again. I bang my head against a brick wall thing. There's no point in preaching. I should just, I should just introduce the baby Christians to grown-up Christians. Oh yeah, obviously. I, what we really need is a kind of army of people who smell like Jesus. And then you just send them out there to shape and influence the world around them in all these unspectacular and sometimes imperceptible ways. You you know that sometimes people won't like the smell. You know, we are to some the fragrance of death. Some people hate that. They hate the the thing that when you smell nice because you smell like Jesus, they think that smells like death. Well, there's a coincidence. It does. It smells like death to them. It smells like the sanctifying death of Christ to those who are being redeemed. And our task is to take that fragrance out into the world. I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop. And with apologies for not getting to some of the other things, it would be great for us to reflect on. I hope that's been helpful. And particularly helpful in placing in it a proper biblical and perhaps even emotional context some of the practical nitty-gritty questions that we're going to come to shortly and in the rest of our time together this week. Let me pray, and then I'll hand over to Pastor Pete. Merciful Father, once again we're grateful to you for the gift of Christ, for the outpouring of the Spirit, that fragranced oil by whom we are caused to take on the fragrance of Christ. We pray that we would not pollute that fragrance just as we would not corrupt that holiness with which we've been blessed by Christ through the Spirit, but would rather live it out with joyful, resolute commitment and determination. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.